What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I am John Rojas. I hope you guys had a great holiday season and are looking forward to a fantastic 2015. I know that today I sat and watched the final game of the Washington Redskins season. One of the things that struck me about this football game is just how much impact there is as these grown, humongous men just bash each other over and over, and specifically to the head. This week, we are talking about concussions, and we are speaking with a leader in her field, Mary Lee Esty. Mary Lee is one of the foremost theorists and scholars in the field of neurotherapy. She is also a senior fellow in biofeedback and neurofeedback. She's been doing research around TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. And this research began with an NIH-funded study, which was published in the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation. And she did a follow-up study with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences. Mary Lee, along with C.M. Shiflett, are the authors of a book titled Conquering Concussion, where they talk about healing TBI symptoms with neurofeedback and without drugs. It's a super interesting read, and especially with everything that's going on today in the NFL and past NFL players who have been dealing with these brain injuries, it seems like it's now at the forefront of our discussions, and it's definitely worth the time to learn more about the subject. Please enjoy this interview with Mary Lee Esty.
Mary Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. I, you know, I got a chance to to read your book in advance. I appreciate you sending that to me. And the book is called Conquering Concussion. And I think it's such an interesting time for so many reasons. And you cover those in the book. The one that really has pushed concussions to the forefront is of the news is obviously the NFL. And I was wondering, have you seen a a, a big increase in people wanting to learn more about head injuries because of what's going on in sports? Sports, yes. Um, personally, in our practice here in Bethesda, um, it's been more uh, first. Really, was the or the head injuries from combat mm. in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, I've am still providing treatment to Iraq, Afghanistan, and other veterans who've had concussions and exposed to blast injuries, and I I think that that has certainly been kind of synergistic with researchers learning more about head injury because they were forced to with the hundreds of thousands of of our veterans coming back with these injuries that are invisible as most of the sports injuries are. You know, as we watch football players, you know, I think of them as gladiators. We just don't see the blood in the lions. But um, being an invisible injury creates so very, very many problems. Uh, as you've read, I'm sure, in the newspaper and magazines, it's, you know, so-and-so was told just to take time and it'll it'll pass. Well, for some people, yeah, you know, the major symptoms, the headache and the fatigue may fade. And if they're really lucky, they don't notice anything anymore. But that doesn't happen to most people. And we also have what are called sub-concussions, which are the little hits that probably occur more on, on the sports arenas than than the ones that really look like a hit. So people look okay. And if you look okay, it's really hard to make the case that, hmm, I've got a problem. So many people have told me, in fact, even a relative of mine was in a fairly bad uh, motor vehicle accident. And they find that they don't want to tell people that they can't remember what they were just told, how bad they feel, how confused they are. And this person, in fact, uh, after I, one treatment, one neurofeedback treatment, was amazed about an hour later, she turned to her husband and said, I know what day it is. Wow. And she hadn't been willing to tell anybody because she thought she was going crazy. You know, and if you look all right, we've actually had physicians tell people who've, who've been diagnosed medically with concussion or the post-concussion syndrome, say, well, you know, if you just get a job or get a hobby, maybe you wouldn't think about it so much. Well, you can't get a job if you can't remember what you just read or it takes you three times as long to write a simple letter or produce a document that you used to be able to do, you know, boom, 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 like that. So that's sort of the immediate for someone who's been functioning pretty much okay, they have an accident, they get hit, they fall down the stairs, they fall in the bathtub, who knows, or, you know, in soccer or baseball or mostly football or ice hockey, and then mm, they just can't do that so well anymore. Then you have the people who've had some level of those cognitive and fatigue and maybe headache symptoms most of their lives. Well, nobody made the connection 
with, and these literally happened just this week. We had someone who, at just a few months old, was accidentally pushed off of a table, landing on the head. These injuries before age five, and the head of pediatric neurology at Hopkins, uh, John Freeman, I've heard him say that when a child is brought to them, with the question of, hmm, how come we have a learning problem or, you know, what's going on here? And he says, we know that we have to ask a lot of questions about what happened, the seemingly not too traumatic injuries, falling down the stairs or whatever, before age five, because the brain is so very, very fragile in all those developmental stages. And it's quite interesting that if you look at the... The official diagnostic manual under post-concussion and post-concussion syndrome and ADD, ADHD, the overlap of the, the symptoms, the behaviors that will constitute those official diagnoses are almost identical. They're not exactly, but almost. That's absolutely amazing. And, you know, can you go into a little bit of detail about post-concussion syndrome? Because just the other day I was watching a documentary. I had never heard of post-concussion syndrome. And yeah, well, people it, talk about concussion. Right. But the syndrome, the official diagnosis cannot be made until, unless the symptoms persist for three months after an incident. I mean, three months, to me, that blows my mind because... That's a long time. That, yeah, that is a long time to experience something. And... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the guys that was talking about it said that he heard a ringing in his ear for months. Oh, um, yes. Just Sometimes things like that. that doesn't go away. It depends on the physical damage inside the ear. Yeah, and to me, that sounds like absolute torture. And to only be able to diagnose it, you know, three months after experiencing these, these symptoms, I mean, these people just seem like they're going through hell. And they are. They really are. <laughs> Yeah, it, it becomes a, well, I guess living hell is an overused term, but I, I am in awe of the people who come to us for help. And we offer all kinds of biofeedback here, so we can treat an awful lot of things. But getting well really requires a, a team. And part of what we talk about in the book is how do you put this team together depending on your symptoms? So it is tough. You know, right at first, the most common things are uh, headache. Fatigue. Remember, after you, you know the common things after you've uh, had a concussion or your child's had a concussion, they said, "Don't let them go to sleep." Right? Mm -hmm. You got to keep them awake. You get sleepy. Then there can also be nausea if it's you know uh, more if it's it's not uh, it's an impact that's got some real power to it. Um, there may be some vision and dizziness problems, nausea, vomiting. You know, that's absolutely clear-cut concussion. The sub-concussion term is now being used by more professionals in head injury as a description of the little dings. You know, the players collide on the field. They, you know, they're a little bit dingy for a few minutes, and then they seem to be okay. But the effects of those seemingly mild experiences become summative. They add up. You may not notice any particular change, but over time, there can be a gradual change in cognitive function and, and emotional function because becoming volatile, more irritable, more easily, incredibly agitated to the point of violence even, uh, is, is one of the longer term uh, outcomes of multiple concussions. And so you, you have these immediate things 
so that shows up in school. Um, I think it was Purdue University did a lovely two-year study of two high school football teams in which they measured the number. They had accelerometers in the helmets, and they did a lot of preseason and postseason. Uh, they did MRIs, <clears throat> pre and post both seasons, and a lot of educational and neurological testing, uh, neuropsych testing, I believe. What they found, just to, not to take too much time, was that even in the boys who had not had what they would call true, absolutely uncontested concussion, there were all these little hits that add up. And so over time, their way of coping and learning changed, but so gradual that they didn't notice. They would not have said they were changing. For those who really had obvious non-contested diagnostic uh, concussions, there was big change. And of course, now with all the imaging, it's getting easier to tell some of these things. Although imaging is not really an answer, an MRI can come out normal even in people who have uh, major hits and major deficits. But there are advances all the time. Diffuse tensor imaging is a very special one that can help. But really, you don't need all that. You can track your symptoms, compare whatever was going on, uh, you know, the way you used to behave and function on your job, whether it's at school, at home, socially. But what we found in the uh, veterans who are kind of a microcosm, really, is a wide range of problems. So sleep becomes a problem. People who didn't have a problem sleeping before, now they have trouble going to sleep. They may have trouble staying asleep. And even if they get to sleep, when they wake up, they don't have energy. It's not a restorative sleep. And when you can't sleep, boy, everything is becomes more difficult. They start having the memory problems. They start losing things. They find they can't remember names. I had a guy in here today who was saying, uh, I just don't get it. He, he had a bad car accident. It was a bad wreck, a drunk driver. And at a meeting, dealing with some new people in this team and could remember the names of the people that had been, you know, part of this project prior to his accident, but not the new people. He could describe what they did, what they were supposed to do, and what they looked like, but can't remember names. So sometimes, you know, people go to the doctor and say, you know, what's happening to me? And I actually had a 30-some-year-old woman who had several concussions be told, oh, well, you're just getting older. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're 30s and you're, you can't remember names now because you're getting older. If so, we're all in a lot of trouble. Uh, reactivity, uh, becoming easily irritated and sometimes to the point of really uh, people starting to walk on eggshells. Uh, and think of how many of our sports figures get into trouble, get into fights. Uh, sometimes they're self-medicating for the pain. Oh, and don't forget pain. Pain can go with this. Not only physical pain, but, but headache is so common. And chronic headache is really, really just legion in this population. And there are a lot of reasons for that, which we don't have time to go into. Their whole attitude toward life change, changes. Uh, becoming pessimistic, dour, you know, somebody that uh, they, many people just lose hope. They feel like they'll never become who they were. They don't know who they are anymore. Mood swings up and down or just down most of the time. And at its worst, suicidal. Of course, with the, um, our veterans, because of their, the horror of their experiences, 
magnified by a brain that's been exposed to blasts or blood injury is is just a a really uh, terrible combination. So it's it's not a um, it's not a pretty scene. It's, it's especially difficult then when people look okay. So we're back to the invisible injury. You look okay, so just get over it. Well, you mentioned that it can be the blast or the bleed, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask is because the subtitle of the book is Healing Traumatic Brain Injuries with Neurofeedback and Without Drugs. So there's two parts of this, um, but the the one being, what is the definition of a traumatic brain injury? I mean, from the outsider's perspective, we think of a concussion, just you get hit in the head really hard. I don't know much beyond that. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of hoping you could, you know, let us know what is exactly going on. That's an incredible question and one we struggled with from the beginning. You know, this book started out not to be a book. It's it's a brochure on steroids. I, I what I asked Carol Shiflet to do because she's really the writer uh, was to if she would do a brochure that I could give my concussion and head injury clients uh, because they had so many questions. And as we got into this, and I you know, have a lot of cases in here, the actual case histories of military folks as well as uh, children and uh, civilian adults, there are so many aspects to this. But the basic question we struck, uh, struggled with in the beginning was, and I think this is a problem for the whole field, is where does concussion, you know, if you have a continuum, you get whacked on the head, okay, you're diagnosed with a concussion. At what point does it become a traumatic brain injury? There's, there's really no clear-cut thing there, and this, this has a lot of implications. You know, language is important. Words and names really mean something, because most people think, oh, concussion, I just had a concussion, no big deal. And I've learned over the years, if I would say the word traumatic brain injury, people, oh, I, I couldn't have had a traumatic brain injury, could I? I the, it, there's such a continuum. There's no one hit is exactly like another hit. So, so we think no of scale. traumatic brain injury somehow, maybe if somebody doesn't look quite right, then maybe you'd call that a traumatic brain injury. So I can't answer that question. I, I, I hope someday somebody can figure out a way to make the language better. So they talk now about mild traumatic brain injury. That doesn't sound so bad, right? Except it says traumatic brain injury. But a mild traumatic brain injury is not mild. It is totally life-changing. It's just to distinguish, historically, it's to use that term to distinguish it from uh, something where somebody's in a coma for a long time or has such obvious physical speech, vision, uh, maybe because of the injury, you know, the whole face looks different. You can tell that something happened to this person as opposed to the really severe one where, you know, there's no question that there are so many deficits that, you know, maybe the, maybe they can't walk anymore or something that's incredibly obvious. But this, the beginnings from the first little dingy whack on the head to someone who's maybe amnestic for a little bit, but hasn't, you know, doesn't really quite remember what happened in the last five minutes or so, but hasn't been unconscious. That's that's a very gray area. There's some very amusing stories, actually. 
many, many people that we've seen come in and say, well, I wasn't unconscious very long. Do you think I had a concussion? <laughs> and, uh, the, the more or less official definition is if you are unconscious for even a second, that's a grade three concussion. So a grade one is just being, you know, kind of perturbed for maybe five minutes or so, and then you kind of feel okay. Grade two lasts longer, maybe 15 seconds, and it's, it's you don't recover quite as fast. But an amusing story recently was a fellow who was uh, became very depressed and turned out that he'd had a few concussions. But then sometimes shortly, I don't remember now how long, maybe a few months before this severe depression set in, he said, oh yeah, I was in that car wreck, but you know... He was driving out in the country, he was alone, and when he woke up, he'd wrapped the car or run into a a, a telephone pole or a tree or something. And he said, but I couldn't have been unconscious very long because when I woke up, the police and the ambulance were there. Well, first of all, he was out in the country, there wasn't much traffic. But, you know, if you're unconscious, you're not there. You don't know. You can't really make a judgment about this, which is why it's rather darkly, sadly amusing that sports figures will take a bad hit. And football players, you know, write about this. That, you know, when they went back on the wheel and field, they had no idea what they were supposed to do or what yeah. was happening. Yeah. And later have no memory of it at all. Mm-hmm. And they're just told, you, you know, they ask them a few questions on the sideline. And there's some rather amusing anecdotes about that in the book. And they, they don't remember even being asked. Fred Smoot of the Redskins actually wrote about... Um, this was a Washington Post article, a very interesting article, about having taken a hit being shaken up. And he says something like, you know, I was <clears throat> on the field and just hoping that nobody would throw the ball in my direction because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> you know, and it, when you think of the language, I, I really can't watch football games anymore because I, I just what's know on. what's happening. Yeah. Um, but the language of the announcers, you know, he's tough, you know, he can take this, he'll get back up. But there's some really awful statistics that have just come out about the chronic traumatic encephalopathy in uh, NFL players. And I just got this a few days ago, that the numbers now of, of the group that is studying the brains of the football players who died to, to see if they have chronic traumatic encephalopathy... Uh, They have 74 brains in hand, not yet examined. 55 have been examined, and 54 of them had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Wow. Which is, it's different from, but it's like just horrible Alzheimer's. And a psychiatrist I know um, emailed me last week and said, I don't know where he heard or read this, that there are fewer high school players showing up for football. I wanted to touch base on that a little bit because I'm completely in the dark with this subject. I do, I do not know enough. And I didn't play football, which now, knock on wood, I'm glad that I didn't as a mm-hmm. kid. But are we making bigger strides in the treatment of this or the prevention of this? I mean, are we going to be able to prevent it? Because football probably will not go away. Oh, and, no. You know, no. and... No, there will always be people who want to do this. Right. They make too much money. And, and that's a choice. <laughs> right. Know, that, it's it's absolutely a choice. a choice. But do you think that we'll be able to make advancements in technology with helmets and other things? Who knows if airbag-deployed helmets or something along those lines? Uh, that's a great question. There's a fantastic guy at the University of North Dakota 
Dr. Zuziski, who is a specialist in biomechanical engineering and in helmets. Uh, you know, anytime, no matter what you're doing, if you're walking downstairs, a concussion depends upon acceleration and sudden deceleration. Whether you fall or you get hit by something, the brain is going to be tossed around inside the scope because it floats. And he designs ejection seats. And you can imagine the acceleration, deceleration mm-hmm. of a pilot being thrown out of the plane. Sure. The seat, I didn't know this, has to fit that body almost perfectly to be as protective as possible. But they're still suddenly going from, you know, a certain speed to suddenly a huge speed. So the brain is still going to bounce. He says it is impossible to design a helmet that will prevent concussion. The closest would be if you had something that held the head and neck absolutely rigid and came down past the shoulders so that the head can't bounce back and forth on the neck because the neck really isn't very relatively strong. So helmets will help prevent skull fracture, but it just doesn't seem to be possible to design a helmet that's fully, fully protective. It's better than nothing. And I was just told by a lacrosse player that the uh, girls who play lacrosse don't wear helmets. They should. Mm-hmm. That at least will help prevent, you know, some of the more uh, injurious things like a fracture. But prevention is really, really tough. So I urge parents who are deciding and should be the ones deciding about what sports their kids play to really look carefully at whatever teams they're going to be on, what kind of pre-season measures are they doing, what are their rules for taking somebody off the field or the arena, whatever. Uh, A very, very fine, um, probably college-bound lacrosse player just told me that uh, she was out with a concussion on the sidelines, and they could actually hear two girls' heads hitting together. And the coach, remember the coach's jobs depending on having, depend on having their best players on the field, right? No matter what the, what the sport. The coach turned and said, I didn't hear that, did you? Mm, wow, it's so awful. It, you know, there, there are so many aspects to this. There's the physical aspect. The, ones, the one uh, sport that has taken this incredibly seriously, to their credit, is uh, car racing the racing business, they have a system called HANS. It's head and neck, head and neck something, H-A-N-S. And we have a picture of it in the book. So that the head and the neck are really fastened with comfort to the seat. So they're not going to get the whiplash injuries. Whiplash injuries are, even at slow speed, are very serious things because the neck is so very vulnerable. And the head just bounces back and forth like a bobblehead. As, As Carol described it, it's not that your head got whipped. It's that you got hit in the back of the head with the headrest. We don't tend to think of it that way. But, yeah. I, you know, the, the one way we could prevent everything would be to live in a zero-gravity environment. <laughs> live in a bubble. Well, it would be a very special bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on Mars or the moon. The moon would be great. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you are an expert on and you how you handle these TBIs and everything is through this neurofeedback, which I had no idea what that was. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I'm sure a lot of people I, out there don't know. Could you kind of tell us, A, what it is, and B, how you use it? Sure. Neurofeedback is just a kind of biofeedback, and biofeedback is any technology that gives us information about what's going on inside our body 
in a way that we can understand and learn to control. So just to show how far we've come in the last 50 years, just last year, the American Academy of Pediatrics, for the first time, lists for attention. Uh, they have what they call their evidence-based child and adolescent psychosocial interventions. These are recommendations to pediatricians for certain kinds of problems. So under the category attention and hyperactivity behaviors, they are listing biofeedback as a level one intervention that pediatricians can turn to and recommend to parents. The biofeedback they talk about, all of the research they cite is neurofeedback. So neurofeedback, biofeedback is generally thought of as information you get from below the neck or below the jaw, let's say, below the skull. Some kind of information from the body that's displayed to you in a way that a biofeedback therapist then coaches um, an individual to learn how to control their blood pressure, for example, blood flow, to reduce pain, to reduce anxiety. So biofeedback above the neck is neurofeedback. So it's neurological information. It's uh, using computers, which have made this possible, to display what's going on in the brain in some way that we can understand. So the standard neurofeedback, which is very effective, has a lot of research behind it and is growing. And some insurance companies are now paying for this for certain uh, kinds of issues. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is, uh, uh, you know, a good resource now for supporting getting neurofeedback for your child who may have attention problems, be diagnosed with ADD, ADHD. So watching a screen that is displaying something about that person's EEG or brainwave activity gives information about some kind of imbalance in the way the brain is firing. When people are symptomatic in some way, and it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's cognitive, emotional, reactivity, pain, there will be an imbalance in the way the brain is producing energy. Where those imbalances occur in the brain are very important, and neurofeedback now with this wonderful computer technology, can display what's going on in some way on a screen. So then, as you watch that screen, you get some kind of information back about whether your brain is nicely balanced or becoming more balanced. And you gradually learn, maybe it's through playing a game and getting points if you are making your brain fire in a more productive way, a common uh, feedback now is the person can choose to watch a movie. The therapist is looking at a different screen. They're looking at what the brain's really doing. But the person watching the movie, you know, they can pick a movie they like, they watch it. And as long as they're shaping, changing just gradually by concentration, how that brain is firing, their own brain, the movie will keep playing. If they start spacing out, it stops. Well, you know, you want to watch the movie, right? So you, hmm. you, you come back to it. The kind of neurofeedback that I'm doing and other folks are doing is, is called a passive kind of biofeedback. I've been doing this particular kind for almost 20 years now, and I've got NIH-funded research for TBI, traumatic brain injury, or concussion. And more recently, a study with the Iraq-Afghanistan veterans who many of them pretty seriously wounded, and very, very uh, PTSD was was a big issue with them. Uh, we had several who had attempted suicide, 
And we were doing a kind of feedback where <clears throat> the brain is learning passively. The computer's reading the brain waves and sending back a very small signal to the brain that kind of tickles it to change the way it's firing. There are several of these uh, stimulation-type systems out there now, and it can be very effective very quickly, and it's, it's working quite well for our current veterans. So there's, there's much more interest in this. And for some, um, some issues, we, we make a map of brainwave activity, which is just a chart showing whether there is an imbalance in the way this person's uh, brain is firing that's consistent with their symptoms, and it acts as a guide as to whether this is someone who should be treated or perhaps not. So both of, in both of them, the brain is learning. And sometimes combining the two therapies has been a more efficient way of treating. But you, you need an experienced clinician who's, who's familiar with their equipment and how to use it. But more and more um, for traumatic brain injury, in fact, there's a quote from... Um, this guy's a psychiatrist at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York who writes, uh, in cases of TBI or concussion, neurofeedback is probably better than any medication or supplement. And even in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences in the last year, some researchers uh, at the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center have uh, written that there is no medication to treat TBI. There still isn't anything. But, you know, the, 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 the military health folks are really, really trying to help. And so medications, as, as any mental health or health provider is, are throwing various medications at symptoms, right. which can help people keep going. Yeah, with the, deal with the symptom. Yeah. But it doesn't change the way the brain's firing. And, right. you know, there are organizations out there where you can find uh, providers. Uh, one is AAPB, AAPeterBoy.org. It's the American Association of Psychophysiology and Biofeedback. And another one is ISNR, the International Society for, I think it's Neurofeedback and Research. Dot org So ISNR.org. And they list uh, certified providers. Oh, another one is BCIA. That's the uh, certification organization. So anyone who's BCIA certified has been trained and met certain qualifications. But, you know, I was appalled recently to see that the military, I forget who was making this recommendation, was going to be looking into, and this is, I think, with funding from... President Obama's initiative, brain initiative, into ways to transplant things in the brain so that it would help, I don't know, re, sort of re-record or somehow plant memories back in people who had lost their memories. And I was just appalled. <laughs> I think I've seen a movie about that somewhere. <laughs> it's like Terminator 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> strange lover. I don't, I don't know. Uh, there are easier ways. You know, surgery for many things can be wonderful, but, you know, kind of try the non-invasive first, maybe. Sure. Yeah, but that's what we do on the in the Western Hemisphere. We just say, oh, can we stick a knife in it and, and patch them up? Let's do it. Yeah, and, and make it go away. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, start simple. Yeah, it's really so surprising that this all took so long to come to the forefront because, like we said at the beginning of this, the brain is such a complex object 
And we're just now starting to scratch the surface on how complicated it is and how important it is and how we need to take care of our veterans and to the extent like our, our athletes as well, but mainly our veterans. It kind of blows my mind that it's taken so long. Well, part of it was needing technology, right? Yeah. the appropriate technology. I have some beautiful slides that show the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, the, the uh, psychophysiological lab there, was, was the real center for doing research on whether you could use information from your body to treat various symptoms. They started with headache and then blood pressure. It was very successful. But the machines were enormous. It was, I mean, one of them is taller than than a man, an ordinary man, probably six or more feet tall and two or three feet wide and who knows how deep. And now you can do all of that in an app on your iPhone or your Droid. That's awesome. So when, when I went out there in the late 80s for training, they had a device that was about the size of a... Remember what a typewriter looked like? About like a typewriter. <laughs> you don't see those. In, those are antiques now. <clears throat> and now with you know a simple laptop, you can do EEG biofeedback. You can do amazing psychophysiological biofeedback, which we find in sometimes, it's called heart rate variability. Sometimes four or five sessions, people who have it, lifelong panic attacks can just learn to get rid of them. So the technology was there. I mean, just when you think of the incredible number of processes that are going on inside our bodies every second. You need a huge technology to just somehow sort those out and be able to see them. When you can see them, you can, it's pretty amazing, learn to change the way your heart and your lungs work together. It is pretty incredible, but it makes sense. I mean, yeah. the most complicated machine ever being us, so we need almost equally as complicated machines to figure yeah. us out. And, and we're just scratching the surface on the brain. I mean, you know, I, my colleagues, all the neurofeedback people are, are just kind of in awe of what is possible for some some people. You know, not everyone gets helped, but boy, I think the vast majority do. And there's no way that Anyone has, you know, the answer now, but we have to keep learning. We have to do research. Absolutely. And show that this can work, which is why I'm doing this research and, and the, the veterans are, are loving it. Yeah. And in the book, obviously, uh, you cover a lot of this stuff. It's really great for anyone interested in not just the traumatic brain injuries, but just the way the, understanding ourselves and through through this lens is really interesting. Yeah. I, I hope understanding and being kinder to ourselves and kinder to the people who are struggling. It is the the lack of understanding that has bothered me the most. Right. To have a physician just say these to me outrageous things. But it's because I think the physicians don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an, a wonderful neurologist who's one of the reviewers of the book who tells some wonderful stories about uh, this kind of thing of people being sent home who should not be sent home. Even uh, he had some stories about Vietnam veterans there. So our, our hope is, and, and Carol, I think, has done a wonderful job in telling stories of real people. And we, we don't have any made-up stories in this book. They're all real people. We've hidden their identities. But when you hear their struggles with their words, I, I don't see how anybody can help not being touched by this and beginning to have more empathy for people who look okay. 
but they're not going to tell you how much they hurt. And they're certainly, you know, but ask questions. Well, and uh, for our listeners out there, what was the name of the website that you guys have up for the book? Thank you. Um, Conqueringconcussion.net. Okay, great. And so they can go on there and check out, learn a little bit more, and also uh, sign up, right? To, for Yeah, they can um, uh, give information. So we, we think we'll be out uh, pr- pretty soon. Awesome. And we don't have an exact date, but it's at the printer. So I think this baby's going to be born. <laughs> About time, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Although it's it's been a wonderful adventure. I have learned so much. I'm sure. And, and, and you know, that's what's exciting is, is to learn something every day. Absolutely. That's why we yeah, do the yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, you guys do a great job. Well, thank really. you. Well, thank you so much for uh, your time and sharing it all with us. Really fantastic stuff and things that I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned, not just because of what's going on in sports, but all over the place people are interested in. So, you know, most most of these things occur at home, falling downstairs because right. you don't have a handrail, falling in a shower because you didn't put down some kind of mat that would give you some some friction mm-hmm. or you've got loose rugs around <laughs> you mm-hmm. run around in the socks and fall on a slippery floor you know the, the danger isn't always in doesn't always look dangerous we take the things we are around every day for granted no gra- gravity is all around us <laughs> <laughs> that's true all right. Well, I think that about does it for us, and we uh, we really appreciate being on the show. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. All right. Have a great have night. Have a good night. You too. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Mary Lee. Again, her book is titled Conquering Concussion, and you can pick that up on Amazon or your local bookstore. If you are going to shop on Amazon, don't forget to use our Amazon banner at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Or use our convenient link, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Really hope you guys enjoyed the show today. If you did, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review, rating, comment, all that good stuff over there. It means a lot to us when you take the time out of your day to do that. We've got a lot of really good shows coming up for 2015. We're really excited about that. If you guys ever want to reach out to the show, please email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. See you guys next week.